two. History as trajectory. Our history is the prologue to the network state. This is not obvious. Booted out. Oh, got booted out. Okay, we're back. My bad. So I'm going to start back from the top of chapter two, which, give me a second because I was disconnected. All right. Thanks for staying with me. Here we go. This is after a quick start. This is history as trajectory. Our history is the prologue to the network state. This is not obvious. Founding a startup society, as we've described it, seems to be about growing a community, writing code, crowdfunding land, and eventually attaining the diplomatic recognition to become a network state. What does history have to do with anything? The short version is that if a tech company is about technological innovation first and company culture second, a startup society is the reverse. It's about community culture first and technological innovation second. And while innovating on technology means forecasting the future, innovating on culture means probing the past. But why? Well, for a tech company like SpaceX, you start with time invariant laws of physics extracted from data laws that tell you how atoms collide and interact with each other, like CERN, C-E-R-N, which is the largest... Um, atom collision network in the world uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. So the study of these laws allow you to do something that has never been done before, seemingly proving that history doesn't matter. But the subtly is that these laws of physics encode in highly compressed form the results of immutable scientific experiments. You are learning from human experience rather than trying to rederive physical law from scratch. To touch Mars, we stand on the shoulders of giants. For a startup society, we don't have eternal mathematical laws for society. History is the closest thing we have to a physics of humanity. It furnishes many accounts of how human actors collide and interact with each other. The right course of historical study encodes in compressed form the results of an immutable social experiments. You can learn from human experience rather than rederiving societal law from scratch. Learn some history so as not to repeat it. That's a theoretical argument. An observational argument is that we know that the technological innovation of the Renaissance began by rediscovering history. And we know that the founding fathers cared deeply about history. In both cases, they stepped forward by drawing from the past. So if you're a technologist looking to blaze a trail with a new startup society that establishes plausibility for why historical study is important, the logistical argument is perhaps the most compelling. Think about how much easier it is to use an iPhone than it was to build Apple from scratch. To consume, you can just click a button. But to produce, it's necessary to know something about how companies are built. Similarly, it's one thing to operate as a mere citizen of a pre-built country and quite another thing to create one from scratch. To build a new society it'd be help, helpful to have some knowledge of how countries were built in the first place, the logistics of the process, 
And this again brings us into the domain of history. Why history is crucial. You can't really learn something without using it. One day of immersion with a new language beats weeks of book learning. One day of trying to build something with a programming language beats weeks of theory too. In the same way the history we teach is an applied history, a crucial tool for both the prospective president of a startup society and for their citizens, shareholders, and staff, it's something you'll use on a daily basis. Why? History is how you win the argument. Think about the 1619 Project or the grievance studies departments at universities or even a newspaper profile of some unfortunate. You might be mining cryptocurrency, but the folks behind such things are mining history. That is, many thousands of people are engaged full-time in offensive archaeology, the excavation of the recent and distant past for some useful incident they can write up to further demoralize their political opposition. This is the scholarly version of going through someone's old tweets. It's weaponized history, history as opposition research. You simply can't win an argument against such people on pure logic alone. You need facts, so you need history. History determines legality. We denote the exponential improvement in transistor destiny, des density over the post-war period by Moore's Law. We describe the exponential decline in pharmaceutical R&D efficiency during the same period as Ebram's Law, as Moore's Law in reverse. That is, over the last several decades, the FDA somehow presided over an enormous hike in the cost of drug development, even as our computers and our knowledge of the human genome vastly improves. Similar phenomena can be observed in energy, where energy production has stagnated in aviation, where top spends have topped off, and in construction, where we built slower today than we did 70 years ago. Obviously, even articulating Ibram's law requires detailed knowledge of history, knowledge of how things used to be. Less obviously, if we want to change Ibram's law, if we want to innovate in the physical world again, we'll need history too. The reason is that behind every FDA is a thegomonai. It's just as behind every TSA, there's a 9-11, and behind every Sarbanes-Oxley, there's an Enron. Regulation is dull but the incidents that lead to regulation are anything but dull. The history is used to defend ancient regulations. If you change them, people will die. As such, to legalize physical innovation, you'll need to become a counter-historian. Only when you understand the, legitimate, um, the legitimacy history of regulatory arguments better than their proponents do can you build a superior alternative a new regulatory paradigm capable of addressing both the abuses of the American regulatory state and the abuses they claim to prevent. History determines morality. Religions start with history lessons. You might think of these as made-up histories, but their history is all the same. Tales of the distant past, fictionalized or not, that describe how humans once behaved and how they should have behaved. There's a moral to these stories. Political doctrines are based on history lessons, too. They're how the establishment justifies itself. The mechanism for propagating, propagating these history lessons is the establishment newspaper, wherein most articles aren't really about true or false, but good or bad. Try yourself. Just by glancing at a headline from any establishment outlet, you can inst instantly apprehend its moral lesson. Xism is bad. Our government is good. Tech founders are bad. And so on. If you poke one level deeper, if you ask why any of things is good or bad, you'll 
Again, get a history lesson because why is exism bad? Well, let me educate you on some history. The installation of these moral premises is a zero sum game. There's only room for so many moral lessons in one society because a brain's capacity for moral computation is limited. So you get a totally different society if 99% of people allocate their limited moral memory to principles like hard work, good, merit, meritocracy, good, envy, bad, charity, good. Then if 99% of people have internalized nostrums like socialism, good, civility, bad, law enforcement, bad, looting, good, you can try to imagine a scenario where these two sets of moral values aren't in direct conflict, but empirically those with the first set of moral values will favor an entrepreneurial society and those with the second set of values will not. History is how you develop compelling media. You can make up entirely fiction, fictional stories, of course, but even fiction frequently has some kind of historical precedent. The Lord of the Rings drew on medieval Europe. Spaghetti Westerns pulled from the Wild West. Bond movies were inspired by the Cold War, and so on. And certainly, legitimating stories for any political order will draw on history. History is the true value of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is worth hundreds of billions of dollars because it's a cryptographically verifiable history of who holds what. Read The Truth Machine for a book-length treatment of this concept. History tells you who's in charge. Why did Orwell say that he who controls the past controls the future and that he who controls the present controls the past? Because history textbooks are written by the winners. They are authored, subtly or not, to tell a story of great triumph by the ruling establishment over its past enemies. The only history most people in the U.S. know is 1776, 1865, 1945, and 1965 and now 2022, chaos. Uh, potted history of revolutions, world wars, and activist movements that lead inexclusively to the sunny uplands of greater political equality. It's very similar to the history the Soviets taught their children, where all of the past was interpreted through the lens of class struggle, bringing Soviet citizens to the present day, where they were inevitably progressing from the intermediate stages of socialism towards, you guessed it, communism. Chinese school children learn a similarly selective history where the real wrongs of the European colonists and Japanese are centered and those of Mao downplayed. And even if any successful startup tells a founding story that sands off the rough edges. In short, a history textbook gives you a hero's journey that celebrates the triumph of its establishment authors against all odds. Even when a historical treatment covers ostensible victims like Soviet textbooks covering the victimization of the proletariat. If you look carefully, the ruling class that authors that treatment typically justifies itself as the champion of these victims. This is why one of the first acts of any conquering regime is to rewrite the textbooks to tell you who's in charge. History determines your hiring policy. Why are tech companies being lectured by media corporations on diversity? Is it because these media corporations that are 20 to 30 points whiter than tech companies actually deeply care about this? Or is it because after the 2009 era collapse of print media revenue, media corporations struggled for a business model, 
found that certain words drove traffic and then doubled down on that, boosting their stock price and bashing their competitors in the process. After all, if you know a bit more history, you'll know that the New York Times company, which originates many of these German, Jeremiah's, sorry, is an organization where the controlling Oxelsberger family literally profited from slavery, blocked women from being publishers, excluded gays from the newsroom for decades, ran a succession process featuring only three cis straight white male cousins, and ended up with a publisher who just happened to be the son of the previous guy. Suppose you're a founder. Once you know this history, and once all your friends and employees and investors know it, and once you know that no perfectly brave establishment media corporation would have ever informed you of it in quite those words, you are outside the matrix. You've mentally freed your organization. So as long as you aren't running a corporation based on hereditary nepotism, where the current guy running the show inherits the company from his father's 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 father, you're more diverse and democratic than the owners of the New York Times company. You don't need to take lectures from them, from anyone in their employ, or really from anyone in their social circle, which includes all establishment journalists. You now have the moral authority to hire who you need to hire within the confines of the law, as SpaceX, SpaceX, Shopify, Kraken, and others are now doing. And that's how a little knowledge of history restores control over your hiring policy. History is how you debug our broken society. Many billions of dollars are spent on history in the engineering world. We don't think about it that way, though. We call it doing a postmortem looking over the long files, maybe running a so-called time travel debugger to get a reproducible bug. Once we find it, we might want to execute an undo, do a git revert, restore from backup, or return to a previously known configuration. Think about what we're saying. On a micro scale, knowing the detailed past of the system allows us to figure out what had gone wrong. And being able to partially rewind the past to progress along a different branch via a git revert empowers us to fix that wrongness. This doesn't mean throwing away everything and returning to the caveman era of a blank git repository as per either the traditionalist wants to quote, turn back the clock or the anarcho primitivist who wants to end industrialized civilization, Davos. But it doesn't mean rewinding a bit to then move forward along a different path because progress has both magnitude and direction. All these concepts apply to debugging situations at larger scale than companies, for example, societies or even countries. You now see why history is useful. A founder of a mere startup company can arguably scrape by without it, tactically outsourcing the study of history to those who shape society's laws and morality. But a president of a startup society cannot because a new society involves moral, social, and legal innovation relative to the old one. And that, my friends, requires a knowledge of history. We'll do one more part real quick. And it's why history is crucial for startup societies. It's short. We've whetted the appetite with some specific examples of why history is useful in general. Now we'll describe why it's specifically useful for startup societies. We begin by introducing an operationally useful set of tools for thinking about the past from a bottom-up and top-down perspective. History as written to the ledger as opposed to history as written by the winners. Think about that. 
We use these tools to, that's a meta statement. That is a meta statement. We use these tools to discuss the emergence of a new Levithon, the network, a contender for the most powerful force in the world, a true peer and complement to both God and the state as a mechanism for social organization. And then we'll bring it all together in the lead up to the key concept of this chapter, the idea of the one commandment, a historically founded socio-political innovation that draws citizens to a star society just as a technology, technologically based commercial innovation attracts customers to a startup company. If a startup begins by identifying an economic problem in today's market and presenting a technologically informed solution to that problem in the form of a new company, a startup society begins by identifying a moral issue in today's culture and presenting a historically informed solution to that issue in the form of, you guessed it, of a new society. One more short one. Why startup societies aren't solely about technology. This is important. Wait, why does a startup society have to begin with a moral issue? And why does the solution to that moral issue need to be historically informed? Can't it just be a tech-focused community where people solve problems with equations? We're interested in Mars and life extension, not dusty stories of defunct cities. The quick answer comes from Paul Johnson at the 11 o'clock mark of this talk, where he notes that early America's religious colonies succeeded at a higher rate than its for-profit colonies because the former had a purpose. The slightly longer answer is that in a startup society, you're not asking people to buy a product, which is an economic individualistic pitch, but to join a community, which is a cultural collective pitch. You're arguing that the culture of your startup society is better than the surrounding culture implicitly. That means there's some moral deficit in the world that you're fixing. History comes into play because you'll need to A, write a study of that moral deficit, and B, draw from the past to find alternative social arrangements where that moral deficit did not occur. Tech may be part of the solution, and calculations may well be involved, but the moment you write about any societal problem in depth, you'll find yourself writing a history of that problem. For specifics, you can skip ahead to examples of parallel societies, or you can suspend disbelief for a little bit, listen a little bit more, and trust me that this historical, moral, ethical angle just might be the missing ingredient to build startup societies, which after all, haven't yet fully taken off in the modern world. Applied history for startup societies. That's coming next. That's coming tomorrow. Appreciate appreciate you listening, Blotty. I hope I said your name right. Um, hope you found that interesting. Um, I'll do some more tomorrow, but uh, really, really appreciate it. And um, hope uh, hope everything's good in your life and family's happy and healthy and that you're having a great day or great night wherever you are. And just uh, sending my love from the U.S., from Cleveland, Ohio, and just... Um, trying to spread good vibes over this world. So appreciate you, appreciate everyone. And um, if you listen to this after it's recorded, Vladi and I love you. We all love you. This is for the people. All right, see you guys.